This is an interview with Drift Glass and Blue Gal on the radio program A Public Affair, which originally aired on WORT-FM on January 3, 2011, and streamed at WORT-FM.org. We are grateful for WORT's permission to rebroadcast. More of Drift Glass and Blue Gal at the Professional Left podcast, professionalleft.blogspot.com. This is WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. mental level low power frequency radio modulation the big sound from underground we bring the truth to places truth is never heard before we bring the sound communication of our tribal war dark vision fly by helicopter good afternoon and welcome to another edition of a public affair and a happy new year to everybody uh today we're going to be talking about the new year we're going to try to put 2010 behind us and figure out how to do some good political strategizing for uh and a more aggressive progressive left and we're going to be talking about theocracy. We have uh, two guests today. We have Drift Glass and Blue Gal. They, uh, you may have encountered them on the internets as bloggers. And um, they also do a podcast together called the Professional Left Podcast, which uh, comes out weekly. And uh, you can find that at professionalleft.helpme. Blogspot. There we go. There we go. Okay, good. I wasn't quite sure what the what the suffix was on that one. And uh, as you may have heard, listeners, that was uh, blue get blue, blue gal and drift glass there um, uh, joining us. And you can join us at two five six two thousand one eight six six eight nine nine W O R T if you're if you are so far away that it would cost you money to call the standard number. So okay. Um, you know, the one thing I'm not prepared to do, actually, is give a proper introduction of either of you as far as background or perspective goes. So can you sort of uh, start with um, an explanation of who you are and your approach to political organizing? Go for it, Drift Glass. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deeply existential question. <laughs> <laughs> I like to um, keep it abstract. <laughs> the... Uh, um, I, I'm, uh, I have a great interest in public policy. I have uh, a lot of interest in how government works. I've worked in education. I've worked around government. Um, I've, I've worked for progressive causes off and on until they ticked me off so much that I had to walk away and you know, take a breath for a while and go do other things. Um, I started blogging about six years ago, coming up on six years, um, at the news blog. Uh, directly, uh, I was always sort of politically interested and tried to be politically aware, but I became active after the 2004 election. And it became painfully clear, and has, I'm sure, to all of your listeners, or most of them anyway, that it's become painfully clear over the last 30 years that the direction we're headed and that traditional, you know, traditional warfare doesn't work anymore mm -hmm. uh, in terms of politics. You really sort of have to find a different way to organize and find a different way to bring people into the process and find a different way to, to awaken their interest in politics or else the sort of, you know, lead weight of the right wing is just going to sweep over this country and kiss a goodbye. So, you know, like probably everybody out there, I struggle with trying to find a way to, to, to reach people, to help give them the vocabulary to express their, their desires and their interest in politics, to help put words around the anger that they might feel, the frustration they might feel, and then point it in a constructive direction. So that's, yep. that's really the purpose of our podcast. I, too, have been blogging since uh, 2004, same year that Drift Glass started, and in 2007 was given an opportunity to work with a large blog, Crooks and Liars, which 
Thrift Class also contributes to from time to time. And uh, that's, that's where I am. I've been blogging for six years, almost daily. And we started our podcast adventure this past year mm-hmm. in January. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary, uh, along with lots of help from Crooks and Liars. We've really uh, had a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a devoted readership, great emails from our listeners. And um, we, we love doing it. I think, I think we see it as, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a ministry, <laughs> but um, definitely what your class said about helping progressives uh, have both hope for the future and also a language in which to uh, describe and communicate their goals and rage and just anxieties about the future uh, in a hopeful way, in a, po- in a positive way. We really worked on that. Uh, well, let's explore a little bit of language and talk about um, our drift class when you were giving your introduction. You talked about um, you know how we organize and how we really have to change the way we organize. And I was going to just interject and say, well, you know, our, you were saying that our, the way we do it traditionally hasn't worked. And I was going to say, well, if you're a member of the authoritarian right, it works great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's talk about there's this contrast. You know, I, I, everyone criticizes uh, John Stewart for in this false equivalency kind of thing and not naming what's happening on either side. So let's, right. let's identify what's happening on the right and let's identify what's happening on the left. You know, very quickly you could say it's sort of this weird authoritarianism on the right and this herd of cats who want to always have conversations and meetings on the left, but I'm interested in, in how you would, I, both of you would articulate, um, you, you know, start to identify the, the sides. Um. I think on the right, it, you essentially have the rise of the base of the Republican Party. Um, there's a, a magazine article or newspaper article from 1964 that is one of my you know personal favorites by Rod Serling of all people, who was writing you know was a, in addition to having an awesome television series or two, uh, was a really good writer and a really sort of very clear social commentator. His, his great works were all about you know social movement and uh, having a social conscience. And he was saying as far back as 1964 that the Republican Party was becoming a welcome place for the Birch Society and the American Nazi Party and the Ku Klux Klan. They were inviting the crazies in to their midst. Um, that's 45 years ago. And the trend has just kept going and going and going. So I think you see on the right sort of the, the, the fruition, you know, the, the poison fruit of 30 or 40 years of really concentrated, deliberate effort to try to make an electorate that is completely reliable and completely reprogrammable. Um, the right, the, the, the base of the Republican Party will believe anything Rush Limbaugh tells them, mm-hmm. even if it directly contradicts something he told them yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they will not believe anything that comes out of any other media. They simply, you know, I'm sure everybody's had this argument with a conservative friend or a colleague or a family member where you just hit them with fact after fact after fact. You deconstruct their, their assumptions. You, you, point out where they're wrong and they just shrug their shoulders and say well that's of course that's what a liberal would say mm-hmm. so you know if, if we're discussing a paradigm i think really we waste our time trying to to reach the right because they're gone you know they've checked out of the political process entirely they're, they're now into a theological process they, they've they've bet their um 
personal and emotional and psychological identity mm-hmm. on like the Bush administration. And they can't go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for a conservative to walk back the last 20 years, they would have to admit they got everything wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's worse, what's oh, so very much worse, Mike, liberals got everything right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they can't admit that. They cannot. do. They're not, simply not psychologically strong enough. They're, they're cowardly in that sense. Or human, I guess, would be a kinder way of putting it. So for my money, focusing on the center, on the people who do create that false equivalence, um, is where the Both money is. Both sides do it. Yeah. You know, both sides do it. I hear that all the time. And that's what our war this year, if we're going to fight a holy war, it's going to uh-huh. be against centrism. This <laughs> fake, um, you know, what, what, cent- what that means when you say, oh, I'm just, I'm in the center and I'm a centrist is, A, I'm afraid of conflict. Mm-hmm. And I don't give a rat's behind mm-hmm. about politics, really. Mm-hmm. I'd rather scratch my butt and switch to Jersey Shore or, you know, Iron Chef and not have to deal with any serious issues in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of laziness, um, the, the, the one way to confront that kind of laziness, and Barack Obama did a very good job of this in 2008, is to make the argument, okay, if you vote with the other guy, you are not cool. <laughs> yeah. That Tragically, breaks yeah. the <laughs> bubble. Yeah. Oh, well, I can't do that. I have to vote. And, you know, it's what it says about me to my friends that I didn't vote for John McCain. You know, if Mm -hmm. I'd voted for John McCain, that wouldn't have been cool. Mm -hmm. You can break that bubble that way. But otherwise, arguments don't work. You know, (laughs) factual arguments don't work. It's going to be this subliminal thing of, uh, you know, you have to make sense and be cool and vote for the cool people. And it. You see that in the polls where people – a lot of people say that they feel their vote on American Idol counts just as much as their vote for president. <laughs> you know, that that really is the world we're living in. The dumbing down of the American electorate is is the enemy. And if you look back to the polls that just before the 2004 election – Again, I have a I have a bug about the 2004 election. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but if you look if you look back at the polls, you you would see something like, if I remember correctly, five to seven percent of the electorate not making up their mind until the last you know four days before the election. Which is I just unbelievable. Wanted, I wanted to go door to door and grab my lapels and say, "What the hell's wrong with you?" Mm-hmm. You know, I, I It's not that it's not that there that I disagree with your right to vote. It's that ha- you have two very distinct. Choices. Possibilities. Yeah. Two distinct choices. What's keeping you from making your mind up? And based on you know, personal polling of people I worked with and knew, they wanted to vote on the popular side. Right. Mm-hmm. They wanted to vote right. for a winner. I mm-hmm. want to be it's a high winner. School. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really is. Yeah. yeah. And you have to really understand the only thing that I hold out hope about attacking the center is that the center is a mathematical function. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it's the relationship between two points on a line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, you can't argue with a conservative because they'll just shut down. You know, mm-hmm. Rush says you're a liar, so I'm not going to talk to you, you know, and, and, and unions are out to destroy America. If you believe in the, in the center, at least, you know, you're lazy and you're not paying attention to politics and you, re- and you really want to sort of be cynically above it all. You want to sneer at everybody. You want to say, yeah, everybody sucks. Everybody's bad. But at least you're willing to have a discussion about both sides. You're, you're open to, to thinking about the fact there are, in fact, two sides to an argument. Mm-hmm. And you might be more receptive to, well, you know, explain to me exactly what the 
equivalence is between people who are in favor of giving benefits to 9-11 survivors or 9-11 first responders and people who aren't. What's, what exactly, where's the middle of that argument? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can, and, and there's a certain, I hold out great hope for shame. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, and I, the, and I'll, the, I'll, go ahead. Uh, the one thing that, that I think happened in 2010, at least among the liberals I know, is that really this was sort of like our psychological Fort Sumter, mm-hmm. you know, because in the, in the lame duck session of the Congress, every fig leaf the Republican Party had left of any sort of moral anything came off. Yep. It was just give us the damn money. Uh-huh. You know, yep. we, will, we, were, we will hold hostage sick people, poor people, unemployed people, the survivors of the people who died in the, in the Gulf uh, on the BP platform. We'll hold those people hostage for no other reason than giving, getting tax benefits breaks for our billionaire sponsors. Mm-hmm. And we don't even pretend anymore that there's any moral you know, facet to it. Just give us the damn money. Yep. And so there, there's really sort of a despicable, naked you know, immorality to the right that that they have just given up trying to hide. Well, and, and on two other levels as well, not just the – on several other levels. One is this tax cut thing is really going to come back, I think, if if we push it to haunt them because it shows that the party of fiscal responsibility is a complete sham. Mm-hmm. And they can't make any argument about government spending and we have to have an adult conversation about – entitlements and we have to be fiscally responsible no you've already shown us in the lame duck session that you have no interest in that you've proven it also in 2010 in november <laughs> the republican party re-elected david vitter mm-hmm. you know a guy who <laughs> had diaper <laughs> sex with prostitutes <laughs> way to sound so, it. No, that's you know the the party of family values is over as we continue to remind them. and and uh what's his name um mark samford mm-hmm. finished yeah. out his term he didn't resign mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> the the nevada senator what's his name um Harry Reed? ensign oh. ensign yeah Ensign, who bribed the husband of his his employee slash mistress to to shut up mm-hmm. about the affair, and everybody knows it. You know, this is like blanket. I did it. You know, and and then you have Newt Gingrich parading around wife number three, yeah. who we all know what they were doing in the. You know, I've, I've had a lot of debate back and forth in my own head as to whether Callista Gingrich, which is her name, whether she is uh, open, whether there's we can have open season on her, because I, I generally shy away from including family and wife and so forth. Mm-hmm. But she was a lobbyist. <laughs> this is the thing. Mm-hmm. She was a Washingtonian, you know, staffer. Mm-hmm. And was called by the Washington newspapers. <laughs> I, you'll you'll die when you hear this. Newt Gingrich's frequent breakfast companion. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> but uh, but if you're right, all of that requires people remembering. You know. Well, that's our job. Yeah, that's, that's our job. And we do we will have not let them forget these things. Yep. We we do have um, a caller. So uh, oh, we're going to yeah, we're going to go to the phones and welcome to a public affair. Yeah, I was just going to add to the mix. Uh, 
the nature of the Republican Party is almost a cult in that they, they control the information that goes to their members, and their members don't trust anything outside of their particular elected uh, mouthpieces for the corporate uh, rich people in this country. The other thing is, it's not just the Republican Party that the left or the progressives or the, the liberal branch or the Democrats are up against. It's also the corporate press. Anybody that looks objectively at the way the, the press covered the health care debate, global warming, white-collar crime, right down the middle, they have been prejudiced through the right every every step of the way. Fred did a study on the, the people that report for the mainstream media, and they found that, yes, indeed, they are much more conservative economically than the mainstream population. And really what we're talking about here is economics. I mean, a lot of, uh-huh. you know, you, there's this, this, the social issues also count, but really we're talking about economics when we talk about the real struggle that we're facing in this country right now. The other thing I wanted to interject here was that George Lakoff has, has excellently analyzed what they're doing. And I, from my standpoint, we're, we're, we should follow what he's saying. We should use the same kind of, of packaging that they use. And we've got the truth behind our packaging, but we have to make our heuristics, our shortcuts, just as, as, as uh, appealing to the public mm-hmm. as the right does. And mm-hmm. we need to drill it down yep. their throats. To me, yep. it's, it's, a, it's a war of propaganda of the left against the right. And unless we can, you know, certainly develop our relationships with the mainstream press to the extent that we can, but war, public public radio, every possible way, this is a true war that we're involved in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the call. Amen. Amen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's you know, what Driftglass was saying when he said this was our Fort Sumter. Okay. Yeah, it is. Right? And, and, yeah. and our job is to give people vocabulary to help them express and understand and focus their, because, there, you know, there's, there's this part in uh, The Matrix and uh, where where um, Neo's told something you felt it all your life. Something's wrong with the world. Something's broken. Mm-hmm. And every progressive I know, you know, politically active or not, sort of understands there's something fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. They can't quite put their finger on it, but um, you know, there's there's a, a joke. Um, it's one of my favorites because I wrote it, and it's uh, <laughs> and that's a good and, joke too. And if you don't find it funny, that's okay. I, I don't mind. But it's it's. Uh, Dick Cheney is found on the White House lawn throwing burning kittens at homeless veterans. What are the first three words out of Cokie Roberts' mouth? Democrats do it is, too? But, but the Democrats. <laughs> yeah, but the Democrats, right. <laughs> you know, the reflex action that's been built into this – and this is why going after the center I think is the only way to do this. The reflex action built into every reporter. My personal hobby horse is David Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but right down the line is, no matter what happens, um, you're, we're not going to report on any story until we can find a an angle from which we can bash Democrats. Mm-hmm. Which is why the, the 9-11 first responders bill was made to order. There was no way for someone to come in and say, but the Democrats. Right, which is this why it didn't the, get reported this, on. Yeah, and this is the other issue that the Republicans have lost because 9-11, 9-11, 9-11 – was their badge of honor and their shield against any attacks about the war, about spending, mm-hmm. about, you know. Oh, it's all different now that 9-11 has. And now yeah. with this first responders, but, well, John Kyle voted against it. He's still having to defend his vote. Hmm. He, he voted against that bill. 
Well, th- this is where Bluegale and I differ slightly. <laughs> um, only because I, I agree with the sentiment, but it's the idea that, that um, bless you, um, that, you know, that they've lost this issue. And the, mm-hmm. the, the unanswered part of that sentence is lost it to whom? Their yeah. base is never going to notice. Their base, you know, yeah. are, again, they're reprogrammable killbots. They don't. <laughs> well, they don't think the for themselves anymore. The caller was fantastic in calling yes. it a call. I had not put it in those in that mind frame before, and he's absolutely right. And, and so we have to think, you know, the, the and you're right. He's absolutely right. It is a cult, and you know, I know we're we're going to elide over into theocracy, which is which is going to be lots of fun, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's the natural segue. But the the they have built a, a very effective, highly well funded. Um, uh, highly propagandized, multi-billion-dollar underwritten cult, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they have a very clear goal in mind. And um, I think if we throw policy jargon at them, we're going to fail. Yeah. And yep. if we keep throwing, you know, statistics at them, they're going to marginal tax rates and yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And and but so the idea that that they've lost the 9-11 issue or they've lost the, the fiscal responsibility issue. They haven't lost it to themselves because they don't care about those things. Those are just right. means to an end. Our job is to keep pounding away. And really, whenever we get a chance to, to get to the media, I think uh, ask them that question. You know, I, I was at a, a, a wonderful speech that, um, or a, a discussion that David Brooks was giving in Elmhurst. And this woman stood up in the audience. It was a church. It was about... Um, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. It was about theology, but this woman stood up and, and calmly asked David Brooks, basically, how the hell he could say these things, um, having you know stridently beaten up on anybody who opposed the Iraq War, mm-hmm. and he had to stand up in the pulpit of a church and lie. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, which was you know those sorts of con- those sort of. But he also made the comment that. Well, you know, I've never actually been to Iraq. I've traveled all over right. the Middle East, but mm-hmm. I've right. I've never actually been to Iraq. But we had to <laughs> go ahead. But you were there. You, I wasn't there, to request, but you have to find those moments where you can confront the people who are selling the centrist lie directly, mm-hmm. and be prepared for that moment when you're in an audience or when you're debating with them or when you're calling in to say, "But but what you just said is a lie." And that's where I think John Stewart really sort of exceeded his design specifications. <laughs> Um, you know, he really did because he, he really, really wants to believe that you know there's a basic equivalence, and he and he's just a satirist. But he, in order to do what he did, the the best thing he ever did um, was the the nine eleven first responder bill, putting that on his on his back and dragging it into light. But to do that, he had to violate his first principle, mm-hmm. yeah, which is both sides do it. And there was no way, just like Blue Gal was saying, there's no way to say to report this story and pretend that there's any moral equivalence at all. And because it was so personal for him, you know, he's the classic centrist in, mm-hmm. in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. He had to finally, you know, sort of man up, step onto the playing field and say, you know what? Uh, there is no moral equivalence here. Yeah, this side right. is right and this side is wrong, mm-hmm. period. Yep. And um, we've got a couple callers waiting to join the program. Oh, and great. Um, I think the second one might be an update from the inauguration. So uh, we'll go to the first one. And um, before we discuss that too much, maybe we'll just hop right into the second one. So hello, caller. Okay, sure. Welcome to a public affair. Hello, this is Ann Alquist at oh, the Capitol. Excellent. Okay, that's the first caller. Well, um, okay, give us a, a little rundown of what's happening up there out on the street. Well, the... The rally that was organized, there were a number of rallies organized for today, but the one that started at 11 a.m. has has wrapped up, um, and it was a a rally of a coalition of 
of uh, faith groups and community leaders, primarily from Milwaukee, uh, who came in today carrying signs, we need good jobs. Now Milwaukee, of course, is has been disproportionately hit by the by the recession. Um, the the faith leaders who um, who I spoke to and the community leaders I spoke to talked about the urgent need for jobs in their neighborhoods for services, um, the poverty that is uh, destroying the fabric of their communities as well. Um, and earlier this morning, these faith leaders had delivered a message, um, a letter to the new governor, Governor Walker, um, inviting him to collaborate to talk about how to improve um, Milwaukee and to um, and to partner to partner with them. Uh, I think that was one one part of the rally. That was a very strong message. They the organizers very much wanted it to be to be a, a coordinated effort to send a, a signal loud and clear, but also that it be peaceful, that it be orderly. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there were there was a, a a small group of people who did try to block um, uh, people from the from the capital who were trying to leave in their in their cars, there were a couple mild confrontations, and the coordinators had to had to ask those um, those protesters and ralliers to to let the cars pass. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were a few people from from Madison from the public sector who represent uh, public sector employees primarily from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who are concerned about um, Governor Walker's um, targeting the, the public sector mm-hmm. um, and some concerns about um, how, how far he's going to, to, take that, uh, to take that as he tries to resolve this over $3 billion deficit. And that is, that is what's happening. Whoops. All right. Well, we lost her. Uh, that happens with cell phones sometimes. So we'll uh, we'll thank her for the uh, for the for the update, and we'll go to the next call. Nope, and we lost the next call too. All right. Well, um, how do you how do you like that? <laughs> well, that that brings up the issue of theocracy because there are people of faith protesting the governor's inauguration. Yeah, nice segue. Let, let's go into that a nice little bit. Nice segue. Well, yeah. Can I can I, uh, can I mess up your segue one little bit? <laughs> um, only to say this that. Um, uh, Anne was her name. Yes. Yes. Um, talked about jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and jobs is the one place, uh, one of the one of the places, especially among small businesses, jobs are the one place where I think in some economic sectors, uh, specifically like light manufacturing, high tech, and things like that, where you really can find uh, an intersection between the interests of um, traditionally conservative, let's say, people mm-hmm. and traditionally liberal people. Mm-hmm. Um, where, when everybody's, you know, when when the the preservation of your small business is on the line, and the preservation of my job at your small business is on the line, you can mm-hmm. create really practical on the ground coalitions that transcend the kind of you know fruitless um, um, yelling at each other over what Rush Limbaugh said yesterday conversations. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's one of the one of the rare places where I think that we really can make progress as progressives by embracing the fact that there are places in the economy. There's real progress to be made and real alliances of, self, of sort of rational self-interest among lots of different people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's jobs base is building. definitely one of them. Yeah, that, 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 well, that's the base that you, that you need if you're going to have you know, something that you build on, right? You Absolutely. Know. And it brings in you know, local community colleges because they do the training for those mm-hmm. kind of things. It brings in public policy people. It brings in land use. Lots and lots of things where 
you can suddenly find lots of people who are willing to, at least on certain things, check their ideology at the door and get things done that are good for the community. And once people start sort of feeling, you know, responsive to the community they live in, you know, and part of a larger sense of this is good for everybody and good for me, mm-hmm. it's easier to sell a progressive agenda to them once they're not afraid of losing their business or their job. I, I do want to segue back into theocracy, but I also uh-huh. – I, I, I think what we're losing, though, is the sense that um, uh, government is necessary. Government is productive. Government is useful. You know, every, everybody on the right just wants to reject it as though it's this irrelevant – amorphous thing that's just sucking blood out of them and, and you know, not noticing clean water and, and functional roads and laws and prisons and things mm-hmm. like that. Oh, no, Jesus well, provides where, all that. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is where I think what Driftglass is saying about small business, this is where there's a huge dividing line between local chambers of commerce and yeah. this big, ugly U.S. chamber of commerce that really doesn't have any problem with shipping jobs overseas mm-hmm. because – their interests are with big business and big corporations and big profits mm-hmm. and electing Republicans as a result. Uh, but small local chambers of commerce that represent and are, are you know, the, their members are small businesses in the community who used to just be concerned about, you know, making sure the street was pretty and had nice trash cans and trees on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now rather upset with the national chamber uh for for you know being part of that machine that's just interested in shipping jobs overseas yeah and, and that, uh, that local that local chamber of commerce needs the high schools to be functional mm-hmm. needs the yep. local community college to be functional needs the roads to work needs um um environmental regulations to right. be you needs know, the gas lines to water. be safe <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Needs they, the they power need... power grid to work yeah and, and when you sort of – and one of the things that uh, we've tried with some success in, in some of my other endeavors is finding your biggest local critic and making that person you know, charge of your education committee. Yeah. You know, if, if you really think the government is awful and that, that you know, education is doomed, fine. Put that person in charge of fixing the problem. You know, you're, you're a business person. You're, you're used to dealing with practical problems, not at the national level, but mm-hmm. you need this high school to function. So, fine. Get in there. Mm-hmm. Help us fix the problem. And, you know, or else shut up. You know, you can, you can stand on the sidelines and whine about it or get in there and help us fix it because nobody wants, any, nobody wants schools to fail. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants kids to be uneducated. Nobody wants their children to be unprepared for the future. Mm-hmm. And, and engaging them at that level, saying, I take your criticism seriously, but now you have to put up or shut up. And, really well, and that's what's going to happen to the Tea Party as well. Which <laughs> yeah. is, oh, yeah. yeah. This was, which was wonderful with Andy, Anthony Weiner this weekend saying to the Tea Party candidate who hasn't been sworn in yet and is still shouting bumper stickers about, I'm in the real world and, and you know, we have to spend money, only the money we have and so forth and so on. And Anthony Weiner just shook his head and said, you're in the real world. This is where we are. We engage in deficit spending to provide services. That's what government does. And uh, this, this, I think fortunately for this person, he's probably in a district that doesn't care. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's a large part of the problem. I have a Republican congressman, and people don't care. They re- reelect him every two years, nonstop, and he's got a permanent position. Uh, sends out newsletters about how 
how horrible it is that big government is this and that and the other, and he's been in Congress for 25 years, you know. <laughs> yeah, like Whatever. 12 times, yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the blog against theocracy and, you know, the power of naming it so that we can conquer it sort of thing. And, and this, mm-hmm. this I, you know, I, there is this sort of slowly rising of the temperature here, you know, getting religion closer to our government and more enmeshed with it. And, um, mm-hmm. and talk about your work to bring some light to that. Okay, well, I'm the one that started Blog Against Theocracy. I'm one of the people that started it, along with Ten Grain and another of, num, number of other bloggers. Uh, it started a few years ago. Uh, it runs Easter weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And well, and the only reason we chose that it wasn't out of uh, in you know any kind of disrespect to religion because I'm a churchgoer, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was not out of disrespect to religion, but. That is actually one of the few weekends when the mainstream media actually covers religious issues. Mm-hmm. So it was done as a very much a strategy kind of argument to do it that weekend. Uh, we simply post uh, blog posts. There's really no guidelines as to what people can post about. Um, but it's not anti-religion, and I want to be very clear about that. Uh, it's There's a big difference between... Uh, what your reporter said about people of faith getting involved in politics and marching and, and making arguments with their elected officials. Everyone has the right to do that. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between that and violating the separation of church and state where the government mm-hmm. becomes an arm of religion. Trying to pretend and, that we're a Christian nation. Right. And mm-hmm. and I lived in Alabama, and actually my ex-husband was uh, president of the ACLU of Alabama at the time when Roy Moore put his Ten Commandments rock in the lobby of the Supreme Court, the Alabama Supreme Court. You know, that that kind of shenanigan, which mm-hmm. is, is that's all it is. It's, it's really just window dressing mm-hmm. uh, to make people who are uh, insecure about their faith feel that something's being done to shore up... Mm-hmm. Religion. In defense of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, oh, well, you know, we're a Christian nation, and if we do it this way, if, if our government has the Ten Commandments on the wall, then we're safe. Well, that's not, um, that's not what people of faith do, really. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't need, God doesn't need the state house of Alabama, Mississippi, to endorse what's going on, you know, in the, in the Baptist Church, it's gener- it, it is generally conservative Baptist Southern um, voters that that have this kind of block in their in their mindset that we well, need a Christian is, nation kind of thing going on. And it is, you know, I mean, I I'm a less regular churchgoer probably than Blue Gal is. Um, much less, probably, but uh, I, I do know a little bit, and I've I've studied it. And the, the nice, the gentleman at, ladies and gentlemen at Loyola, gave me a, a bit of a couple of semesters worth of theology under my skin, and I find it fascinating because the Bible is full of interesting, you know, stories, uh, great plots, great characters, you know, the great villains and heroes, and um, the idea that uh, um, uh, we should, um, uh, where the hell was I going with this? I forget. It was well, um, this. This is the crime of Judas. Oh, I'm sorry. It was it was the Levit- it was the Levitican sense. Yeah. It was that yeah. that you know these people who who espouse this stuff. I don't think of as Christians at all. I think of as really strict Leviticans. They they need yeah. lots of rules. Hmm. 
They need a book full of rules that tells them exactly how to behave every minute of the day. That's why they find Rush Limbaugh so attractive. Yeah. yeah. And, and Glenn Beck so attractive. Yep. They, are, they literally require you know, the, the, the rules that their pastor gives them about gays being bad mm-hmm. and government being evil and hurricanes being caused by feminists. <laughs> um, you know, is there – well, you know, this is, this is what Jerry Falwell said right after That's what he 9/11. said, yes. You yeah. know, that, that the towers came down. Because, you know, for in, in no small measure, thanks to, you know, feminists and gays in the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Well, and Kat- um, Katrina was, was – he blamed Katrina on black people worshipping, you know, the devil in, in uh, the bayou, Haiti. you know. That was Haiti, yeah. yeah. Well, that was but, Haiti. But it's, Same thing. They, yeah. But they need, they need this software, this, this very rules-based, rigid, restrictive software to run on their mental hardware. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have it, they freak out. You know, they can't deal with you know, a nuance. They can't deal with areas of gray. They can't deal with you know multiple bad solutions. They have a very, I believe, I'm pronouncing it correctly, Manichaean view of the universe. Mm-hmm. There's a white, right yeah. answer and a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Period. And, and there's nothing makes, in between. And then it makes everything very easy. You're yep. either with us yep. or against and, us. You're and either with the is a big or against part us. of it. Yep. 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 And it's really about safety. And that's. But what's more important about this argument, especially this year? is the extent to which the Republican Party and specific Republican candidates have always banked on this group of very frightened voters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to simply – they're very easily manipulated. Mm-hmm. And we have to call those candidates on that. I was doing a little bit of math and discovering that you know, Republicans have held the White House for 24 – 27 out of the last – no, excuse me, 24 out of the last 37 years since Roe v. Wade. Wow. 24 out of the last 37 years. There was Carter for four years, Clinton for eight, mm-hmm. and Obama for two. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, it's been Republicans in the White House since Roe v. Wade. And the interesting thing is that in 2000, the popular vote goes to Gore, uh-huh. and, that, yeah. and that, yeah. that starts to influence that balance. That's, that's a four-year switch. And yep. if... And if yep there was any kind of re-election hope in 2004, that whole thing, you know, the Bush family, well, yeah, we don't need to rehash 2000, but, oh. but yeah, I mean, that's significant, you know, when elections get stolen and things like that. But yeah, we do, it is. We do but the, have, but the abortion uh, issue is one, I think, where in the back of their minds, a lot of these programmable conservatives simply feel black and white, Manichaean, I will not vote for baby killers, mm-hmm, period. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And yet, <laughs> and it's okay if a baby killer gets shot in the head while he's standing in his church. Oh yeah, right. And, yeah. and it's, and it's that's okay. And it's okay for us to kill brown babies all around the world. Yeah, yeah. in war. We, that's yeah. you know that's oh I never thought of it that way. You get the you know really. Yeah. And and um, but but you know it's it's a cash cow. The abortion issue is a cash cow for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. They've had the power to do something about it. In the you know, at least in the White House, in name it, and George Bush hardly ever talked about mm-hmm. abortion. Yeah. George W. Bush. We, yeah. Well, yeah. They, they don't because for two reasons. One is it's a cash cow for their party. Yeah, yeah. So if it's and there, the other, the, it's the other good is could... something that Nixon on tape actually flat out said, which it, when Roe v. Wade came down, which is well, when you have a black and a white. Uh huh. You're going to want to, ha- you know, you're going to yeah. want to take care of that. You want to want to open up that option. And so there's yeah. this real 
you know, wanting to have that safety valve, if your daughter sleeps with a basketball player, I hate to use the code, but that's what they're talking about. Right. That's the right. code they'd use. You know, you don't want to have to go to an Indian reservation to have it taken care of. Mm-hmm. You want to go to a white clinic in Atlanta, and mm-hmm. you want to fly your daughter to Atlanta and have it taken care of. Yep. So, It's you know, a class issue. Yeah. It's a class issue. It absolutely is a class issue and a race issue. Mm-hmm. So... Well, there, the, there is the a model thing. for this. There, there's, you know, there, there are, there is a country where it's run by, you know, uh, oil executives and orthodoxy is, infor- is enforced by religious <laughs> zealots, and it's called Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The only country on the planet named after a family. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. until until we rename the South, you know, Bushalvania, yeah, <laughs> which is not its way. You know, yeah. we do have another caller waiting to join the program, Great. so we'll Great. go to the phones. Hello, and welcome to a public affair. Is that me? That's you. Hi. Welcome to the show. Go ahead and talk. I think we may be having phone problems today. Yeah. Uh, The receptionist this morning was saying that um, there were a few issues with the phone. So, caller, um, sorry if you got dropped. Uh, Go ahead and call back, and we'll continue on with with what I find I've been saying in a lot of my recent shows, and I want to get your opinion on this. The model that I refer to when I think about the way our culture is right now is the Soviet Union. You know, Mm. we have a Pravda. We have a news service that gives people everything that they're happy to digest and gives it to them in a way where they won't object or go into the streets. I mean, you know, when elections get stolen, it's like, oh, it's okay. We'll just keep moving forward. And, um, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart. (laughs) And I just kind of wonder – you know, what our tools are to keep that from happening. Well, to, to keep to, the, the great American empire from falling apart or, well, I guess to keep it from being, you say that Soviet. like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what we're trying to tell you. To, to return yeah. it into uh, an actual democracy and getting it uh, away from being an empire. Yeah, I guess I'd prefer that it fall apart, but not in a calamitous way, but in no, a way no. that where we deconstruct it by strategically pulling out the important rocks and well, revealing something beautiful behind it. Well, the the you know not to be you know hopelessly bourgeois, but um, <laughs> the thing that makes the thing that has always made has guaranteed stability, good or bad. And this is you know acknowledging the fact that you know during the fifties, fifties were, were a bad time if you were a woman and a bad time if you were a minority. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't yeah. look back on, on the, uh, I don't think, I don't see any good old days in this country. Mm-hmm. Every age has had its really serious problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather be living now than any other time in history, frankly. Mm-hmm. But what keeps America, what has traditionally kept the United States stable is a middle class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A nice pro people who are bought into the system, mm-hmm. you know, and people who really, you know, it's, it's cliche as hell, but it's still true. People who you know work hard and play by the rules and believe that the future can be better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's along each of the the affronteries to democracy that have occurred over the last thirty years. There's been a bump in the direction of, you know, that's what we're losing, mm-hmm. we're losing any sense that we are one country, that we can ever come together over anything, and that really it's worth even worth saving. Mm-hmm. You know, if you offered if you offered the South a chance to secede again. You know, oh yeah. yeah. Do you think they'd take it? I think they would. I think yeah. a lot of states would. Yeah, I think I'd let them. Um, yeah. Well, that's then. There's the problem. <laughs> it's true. We, it's true. Yeah. We we have we have a far flung military and corporate empire that needs to be rolled back. We have troops everywhere that need to be brought home. But more importantly, we need an economy that's built on 
making sure everybody feels they have a stake in the game mm-hmm. and everybody feels that they can live a decent life and you know and that that has to do with how much CEOs get paid that has to do with yeah. repealing Reaganomics that has to do with sort of resetting the, the economy understanding that taxes was, build a society yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and being productive builds a society and that you know having an economy based on you know arbitraging on Wall Street is a really bad idea <laughs> and but, but that, drift class I don't think I think there's an awful lot of people in this country who don't have any institutional memory of what middle class life should be. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't mean to harp on good old days, but you know, my dad bought his house in 1962 for $10,000. And that was um that was also his annual salary. <laughs> there aren't people in America who can take one year's salary and say, yes, I can buy a house for that. Yeah. There aren't people in America who can, middle class people in America who can do that anymore, mm. ever. Mm. I, I, uh, I've told the story on the podcast, but uh, I got a ride back to my house from a guy who was repairing my car. And we were just talking about family and our kids and so forth, and he had two grown children. I say grown because they were 27 and 25, and both of them were living mm-hmm. at home. And the father who's driving me back from his place of business, he's a small businessman, locally owned. It's not a chain garage. He owns this business, said, I really don't have anything to complain about because my son pays for his gas, his car insurance, and his cell phone. That's how much money his son makes, (laughs) that he's able to pay for those three things. And that's it. That's all this 27-year-old. My dad bought his goddamn, excuse me, doggone house. <laughs> We're not in on podcast. 1962. Yeah. Bought his house in 1962 at the age of 27. Yeah. Uh-huh. Bought a house. And, and, We've and, stolen that from our kids. And, we and and could go to school and not rack up, you know, hundreds yeah. of thousands yeah. of dollars. He had a master's degree. Yeah. He well, wasn't paying off is, student loans. And speaking of uh, – hang on just one second. Speaking of racking sure. up, we all of a sudden have three callers waiting to join the program. <laughs> so it always happens that way at the end of the show. So um, yeah. we're going to plow through them yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask the callers to be concise and focused, and we'll go to caller one. Hello. You're on a public affair. Yeah. Hi. Is that me, Mr. Yeah, Luna? That's you, Mr. Mike. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yes. Uh, listening to uh, your guests, I, I have any number of things I could say. I think you're absolutely right about the question of institutional memory. Uh, the decline of the middle class is generally uh, dated at about 1973. Yeah. So uh, obviously we have a significant number of our population that uh, do not remember those times. I mean, I'm old enough I can remember when $5,000 a year was an average salary. And mm-hmm. with that salary, uh, one could support a family with one breadwinner, one could buy a house, and one could be relatively assured of a job for the rest of uh, their working career. And obviously, those are utopian uh, visions now. And the question of being dependent on parents, uh, I have two uh, university degrees. I'm 55 years old, and I'm still financially dependent on uh, my mother, my only surviving parent. And my continued financial well-being, to put it very bluntly, depends on how soon she'll die so that yeah. I'll have the uh, bulk of the inheritance left. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just how screwed up our economic uh, system is. also wanted to make a comment about uh, the shift towards conservatism. I mean, it's all relative. 
uh, it, it's hard to believe, but Nixon was actually more progressive on social Absolutely. programs mm-hmm. and yep. social yep. services than was uh, the ultimate huckster president we've had named Bill Clinton, who people mm-hmm. still seem to think is the greatest thing since the wheel, even though yeah. I find him yeah. to be a total, totally morally and otherwise bankrupt. And I guess those are some of my reflections on your guests' observations. And uh, thank, you. thank you for taking the call. Yeah, thanks. Thank and you. thanks for making the call. And I think um, maybe we'll just go right into the next call. We've yeah, got about go six minutes left in the show. Hello, and welcome to a public affair. Thank you for taking the call. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted you had talked about um, Americans coming together. I can uh, predict one way that at least Democrats and Republicans would become, uh, you know, they, they would run screaming into each other's embrace, screaming with terror. And that would be if there was a legitimate third party movement in this country. You would see bipartisanship <laughs> like you have never seen it before yeah, in your life. Yeah. 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 Thanks for the call. Yeah. Uh, just real quickly, what about third partyism? I know there's a, <laughs> a lot of opinions about how it's the worst thing possible or the best thing possible. Yeah. Well, I, I having. I think the word yeah. possible is the word yeah. that. Sure. I have a problem with. Yeah, I just don't enough. think it's possible. Uh, yeah, the enough. media will never take a third party seriously because yeah. the the uh, push me pull you. This is why people still talk about Sarah Palin. You, know, um, uh, Chris Matthews still mentions Sarah Palin every other day. Mm-hmm. Ratings. It's got to be a horse race between yeah. two horses. Yeah, uh-huh. it can't get complicated. No one, no, you can't complicate it with yeah. with anything else. Yeah, and, and at, at a local level, really seriously, you know, once once yeah. your party, once a, a third party gets a couple of governorships under its belt, uh-huh. a couple of congressional candidates under its belt, has some real rock solid issues it's running on, and is that's why I'm will, I'm perfectly willing to vote green at a local level. I'm perfectly willing to hell, I'm, I'm willing to vote for a libertarian who you know to do the treasury work to, to watch the numbers at a local level, but. Um, at a national level, you know, this is third parties exist to deprive one party or the other of votes, yeah. and that's that's unfor- that's the unfortunate cynical calculus of. And this is I'm speaking as a person who cast his first presidential vote for John Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like yeah. yeah. I like to apologize for helping get Ronald Reagan elected at this late date. Yeah, and you're talking to a native voter here. We have two more callers <laughs> uh, waiting to join the program, so we're going to grind through a few more calls. Hello, and welcome to a public affair. Oh, uh, is that me? That's you. Yes, I just wanted to uh, ask God uh, to spend the last, like, precious two minutes of this program for your guests to actually talk about political strategy rather than just what's wrong. We all know what's Good. wrong, everything from the uh-huh. media landscape mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. rightward mm-hmm. shift and everything in, in between. We all know that. Can, but yeah. can you just talk in specifics, not in platitudes about, like, oh, we have to educate people and so on and so forth, but specific projects that, that people can do and should be doing on the ground or experiments even better yet in terms of getting the organizing back to a a level of relevancy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Good. uh, Be the media. Yeah. Excellent. That's that's a very specific thing that we have done uh, over the past six years and certainly even more so in the past year with podcasting. This iPhone revolution is going to change everything and like it or not. Sure. (laughs) And, and, uh, I don't like how addicted people are to pushing little buttons on a little box all the time. I wish there was a lot more uh, time and energy devoted to face-to-face communication and rallies and so forth, but that's, that's not going to happen. What is going to happen is people are going to start accessing information based on what they feel they need to get the job done. And we have to make that media 
uh, be there. The blogs have done this. People, sure. You know, mm-hmm. the mainstream media has to respond to the blogs. And the president is responding to the blogs in a very petulant way right now. <laughs> the Democratic presidents are going to have to get better, much better than Barack Obama has been done. I think it's well, important to, to, to sort base, of delegitimize you know. the current media, too, you know, to really say Chris yeah, Matthews yeah. is just doing it for the ratings. And, it, and he'll yep. say whatever he needs to do that. Yep. Well, and but, I, I would add, I'd add two other things, and that is uh, unions. Um, mm-hmm. There are good unions and bad unions. Find uh, unions, when I talked to some union guys at, uh, at Roots Nations a few years ago, fundamentally misunderstood the Internet. There used to be things called union organizers, mm-hmm. you know, who would go into neighborhoods and would actually take up the cause of local groups. Um, lo- you know, community organizing and local organizing. If you're looking for a national magic bullet solution to solve the problem of the 2012 election, forget it. That's not going to happen. Uh, the, the Republicans took 30, 40 years to do what they did, mm-hmm. and they did it well, but they started locally. So if you're not involved in your local school group, your local industrial council, uh, go to your local community college, find out you know where the jobs are, and involve yourself in, in bending those things in a progressive direction. Make sure there's a progressive voice when people are deciding what to fund at the local level and what not to. Yep. And, make, and, and, and what we and said then, in our last podcast is come out as a liberal. Yeah. Come out One of the, the best things you can do is say, look, the, the, to your neighbor or to your colleague who, who's been taught to hate liberals uh, blindly, come out and say, look, I'm a liberal. I love my kids. I love my town. I love my country. Um, I'm the, I, I, what you've been taught is simply false. I'm the face of liberalism. And I'm just like you. And things I want like good that. schools. I want clean, safe roads. I want safe water and food for my kids and for your kids. And then I also think this entitlement uh, debate that's coming up is going to really force people to ask themselves about the role of government in their own lives. And when, so it start, when we start having conversations about cutting Social Security and having adult conversations and eat your spinach, that hmm. guy who's, mu- who's living off his mother at age 55, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, Put, put him in front of Glenn Beck all day long. And there are a lot of people like that living with yep. their mom watching Glenn Beck all day. Yeah. And when they have to start really when – when the rubber hits the road yep. and your, your check is going to be affected by what these people do, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's going to be – we have to channel that populism. I'm, I, I don't want to be vague about that. Yep. Use the internet. You can certainly do that in Madison. <laughs> Use yeah. the internet to find like-minded people and get out of your house and go and meet with them and then strategize. Well, Drift Glass and Blue Gal, I'm sorry. Uh, we are, unlike podcasts, we are up against the clock, and <laughs> uh, we've absolutely <laughs> smashed into it. I want to thank you both for taking thank the time you. out to be with us today. Um, Thanks, Mike. Professionalleft.blogspot.com. Professional thank you. I wanted to say that. <laughs> and I will um, be in touch with you in the future, I'm sure. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. We and, enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks to Lucas for Engineering. Thanks for the volunteers that make WRT work. And, of course, you, the listener sponsors. Democracy Now! is next. Thanks for listening and keep listening. Thanks, Mike. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, Wisconsin, and WORT HD. Mike and Mike,